0: 453 he keeps me sane 2nd Corinthians. This morning we will introduce the book of 2nd Corinthians, which I have to say is one of my favorite books and has been for a long time, primarily because as much as I consider myself a Paulinist, as much as my theological outlook has been influenced by the writing and theology of Paul... Second Corinthians is perhaps the, well not even perhaps, it is definitely the most personal of the letters that Paul writes. And you kind of get to pull back the curtain a little bit and see the man behind the theology. I'm a great fan of his theology, I'm a great fan of his brilliant arguments And I am a great fan of the fact that God sent him to the Gentiles to tell us about God. So he is our direct connection to the knowledge of God. But I really like 2 Corinthians because it's so personal. Another characteristic of 2 Corinthians is even though all Pauline letters have a tendency to just kind of leap from subject to subject without a whole lot of transition, he just makes a statement and then makes another statement and makes another one, and sometimes they vary wildly. You see that more in 2 Corinthians than just about anywhere. But the purpose of the letter seems to be that after Paul has intended to come back to them, which he is still intending to do, he's going to get back to Corinth a third time, and prior to him coming, he has written this letter... And a certain amount of this letter is him explaining why he said the things he said in the first letter, which actually historically was the second letter, because the first letter to the church at Corinth we don't have. It's been lost. So what we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second Corinthian letter, and what we call 2 Corinthians is the third. Some people even argue that it might be the fourth, that there may have been a... Interstitial letter in between that got lost somewhere, but there's no real evidence of that so so Paul's coming back to Corinth and he realizes that when he gets there the last things that he has said to them were pretty harsh and he even says that it was a a painful letter for him to write and so now that he's coming to see them face to face. He is explaining some of why he said the things he said. He's being a tad recalcitrant, and mostly he is calling them back to fellowship, back to the Christian way of life, and back to concern and love for one another in an environment that is very, very hostile, not only to Christianity, but also to Paul's teaching. A few minutes ago, we heard uh, Galatians 5 that Micah read for us, and the problem in the church in Galatia was that the Judaizers were infiltrating the church. Let's define for a moment who the Judaizers are. The Judaizers were those Jewish believers who believed in Christ but also felt that you had to keep some amount of the law in order to be justified and so they were trying to get the folks at Galatia to be circumcised and keep parts of the law well that same Judaistic tendency seemed to follow Paul wherever he went so once he had established a church in Corinth and once he has taught them the theology of salvation by grace through faith without the works of the law, then naturally there were going to be those Jews who came in behind him and said, Paul is not really an apostle. Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. Now there were a couple different Jewish groups that Paul had to deal with. There were some who came in and said, Paul's not an apostle, but I am false apostles, who then would be contrary to Pauline teaching based on their own self-authority. There were also the Gnostics. He had to deal with the Gnostics. The, The Gnostic philosophy basically believes that anything that is flesh is inherently evil, and anything that is spirit can potentially be good. But there's no way that flesh can be good. And so with Paul walking around talking about the resurrection and pointing to Christ and saying the resurrection of Christ is the proof of our own upcoming resurrection, well, the Gnostics thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would Christ, if he was truly good, why would he return to flesh? Because flesh is bad. And so they argued that the visions that the apostles had seen of Christ alive after the resurrection, that they weren't uh, flesh and blood resurrections. I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus told Thomas, see, it's really me, I'm not a spirit, touch me, touch my sides, touch my wrists, Uh, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone like you see on me. He was countering that Gnostic tendency That was philosophically so popular within the Grecian world which had conquered the Middle East and so Grecian philosophy had conquered the Middle East. So Paul is having to deal with Judaizers and he's having to deal with false apostles who are saying he's not an apostle. Paul's having to deal with Gnostics. All these folks have been coming into Corinth since the last time he was there. And they have been saying all manner of things about Paul's teaching. And so you'll see in 2 Corinthians that Paul spends a fair amount of time defending not only his apostleship, but defending the theology that he teaches. And he has to go back yet again and say, this is God's way of salvation. God elects people. God chooses people God redeems God justifies that human beings can't do that by their flesh or by the law in fact he refers to the law as the ministry of death pretty harsh language and especially in a church that is largely Jewish as the church at Corinth was and with all these Judaizers who are really saying the law is the way to go the ones who are promoting Peter, John, and James back in Jerusalem and saying, they have the right teaching, but that Paul guy, he's an interloper. We don't know anything about his teaching, but the Jerusalem, Peter, John, and James, those apostles, they have the right teaching. All those that were countering Paul constantly had to be responded to, and so Paul yanks out some of his most surprising language in order to identify the law for what it really is. And so yet again, we're going to have to discuss law and grace as we go through 2 Corinthians. I'm going to spend a certain amount of time just identifying a lot of terms because the terms that he uses early in the letter here are just absolutely vital for us to understand. In the the Koine Greek, as he was writing this letter, or as his amanuensis was writing this letter. It may have been Timothy, it may have been someone else, but but as they were writing this letter in Koine Greek, they were using very specific words so that we would understand or so that his original audience would understand the great passion that he had for them, and the great love that he had for them, and the conscience that he had for them, even as they were rebelling against him. So he's preparing to come back. Now, Paul left Ephesus. He wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He left Ephesus in AD 56. And he was bound for Macedonia. You can read that in Acts 20. And he was going to make a preliminary stop in Troas, where he hoped to rendezvous with Titus. We're going to read about that in 2 Corinthians. And he was hoping to receive some news from Titus about the situation in Corinth, because he couldn't find Titus, he anxiously pushed on into Macedonia, apparently with a grave concern about Titus' safety. That's going to come up in chapter 7 of this book. There he did meet Titus, who brought good news about the general well-being of the Corinthian church, but bad news about all these groups that were opposing Paul. And so that's all the inspiration for Paul writing again. So he penned 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. And then he made his third visit to Corinth, and he did winter with them there, probably AD 56, 57. This is the time frame we're talking about. You can read about that in Acts 20. I think we did read it last week as we were finishing 1 Corinthians. As I said, no letter of Paul's is more personal and more intimate in nature than 2 Corinthians. He really bears his soul and he professes to his abiding love for the Corinthians despite their apparent fickleness in affection toward him. What concerned Paul preeminently was this presence of false teachers who were claiming to be apostles who had entered the church who were promoting their own ideas, and they were seeking to discredit both the person and the message of the Apostle Paul. Now, as I said before, there is a very large Jewish presence in Corinth, and there's a very predominantly Jewish presence within the Corinthian church. And so some of the language that we're going to look at has that Jewish feel to it. That's why in 1 Corinthians, there are so many references to to the feast days, and to the law, and, and why he has to refer to those Jewish customs so frequently. If he was writing simply to an all-Gentile audience, then these many, many references to feasts and laws and customs of the Jews would make no sense, because the Gentiles wouldn't have any of that background. So you'll see again, he's, he's going to make those references Legalists were trying to return these Jews to the law, and or Palestinian Jews had sought to raise the Jerusalem leaders, like I said, John and James and Peter, they were trying to raise them up over Paul's teaching, just any way that they could tamp down Paul's teaching, because Paul's teaching, you have to realize, especially to the Jewish mindset, was genuinely, truly radical. We're raised on it so we don't feel how radical it is. But so much of Pauline teaching is, is 180 degrees separated from Judaistic customs, Judaistic history. By the time he keeps saying that the law has been done away with and that Christ nailed it to his tree and took it out of the way and by the time he refers to it as the ministry of death, I mean, these things are, are absolutely contrary to the Jewish believer. And so you can see what, for absolutely, for 1,400 years, they have been keeping these customs. And then Paul comes onto the scene of history saying these things about the law and about the new covenant. The new covenant's going to feature prominently, again, right here in this letter. So all of Paul's letters have a tendency, as I mentioned earlier, all of Paul's letters have a tendency to digress. But boy, we're really going to see it in Second Corinthians. I, I can only assume that the way the letter was written, because as you read it and you see these digressions and changes of subject, you have to either figure that he and his, Emanuens his secretary, probably Timothy, that they must have sat down and written this letter in sections. Paul must have said, oh, say this. And then Timothy wrote it, and then they went off and did something for a while. And then they came back, and Paul said, oh, add this. And then they wrote it. and Because I can't imagine that Paul's thinking, as logical as we've seen him be in other places like the Book of Romans or the Book of Ephesians, he's so didactic and so logical. I can't imagine that he sat in one sitting and took these kind of off-roads and divergences. But the letter does have a tendency to, to kind of wander about a bit. That has caused some people, by the way, some commentators say, that the the book of 1 Corinthians may actually include bits of what we consider the lost letter, that first letter, because these divergences are just so big. And so there have been some people who, in attempting to explain these divergences, have said, well, that's because somewhere in the early days of copying and rewriting this letter, that the first letter was not completely lost in those early days and somebody incorporated it into this second epistle. You'll find that theory out there being bandied around on the Internet by people who are much more theologically adept and have more free time than me. So he's in Macedonia. He's about to travel to Corinth. This is going to be his third visit with them. And that's why he writes this letter. This letter also answers some of his misgivings about his earlier letter, which some people just thought was too harsh. And that takes us to chapter 1, verse 1. Now we're not going to get very far because I'm going to take some time to define words and to really try to dig behind the theology that would allow Paul to say the things he says here. For instance, he starts the letter right away. It's a fairly common greeting, but he says, Paul, and then he immediately identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He uses that phrase in a few different letters because he wants people to understand that this apostleship that he has, this ministry that he has to the Gentiles, isn't something he chose. He was on the Damascus Road on his way to go kill Christians with a writ from the leaders in the Jerusalem temple allowing him to arrest Christians, those that are in the way, and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial and be killed the same way that Stephen is killed in the book of Acts. And so that's his intention. That's his plan. His plan is to squash this Christian thing because he's a thoroughgoing Jew. As he said, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, before the law, blameless. And so he's out killing Christians. When a light from heaven knocks him down and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I like to point out that Saul was not persecuting Jesus directly. He was persecuting Jesus' people. But Jesus took it so personally that he was offended by it and said, why do you persecute me? And Paul, in his brilliance at that moment, his response was, who are you? (laughs) He didn't know, who am I dealing with? When he realizes it's Jesus, when he's told that it's Jesus... And that now what he is going to do is go into the very city that he was headed to to go kill Christians. He has to go to the home of Ananias who is a Christian and Ananias has to pray for him. And Ananias actually sees in a vision that Saul is coming to him and he argues with God about it and says, Don't you know who this is? This is Saul, the Christian killer. Why would you bring him to my house? He can go to someone else's house. Bob, up the road, I don't like Bob. (laughs) No one likes Bob. Bob, a good Jewish name, I I don't know. It's a good Greek name. Why would you send him to me? And God says to him, he's a chosen vessel. I have chosen him for two reasons. God lists two reasons. Number one, I've chosen him so that he can preach my word to kings, to Gentiles, and to the children of Israel. And I will show him what great things he has to suffer for my namesake. So not only is he told right up front, he's a chosen vessel, I'm going to use him to preach to the Gentiles, but it's going to suffer in the doing. The suffering is just part of the package, and Paul's about to talk about that. So, The reason that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles is not because he chose it. Now, all of the false apostles, all the ones who are coming into Corinth and saying, listen to me, don't listen to Paul, I know what I'm talking about, he doesn't, unless they are one of the original 12, they are not apostles. And that is true to this very day, because there were standards to be an apostle, You had to have not only been with Jesus during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, but you had to have seen the risen Lord. And if that was not the case, you couldn't be an apostle. And that still stands today, which means that nobody today that's calling themselves an apostle actually can be. So you can see why Paul would have to argue, because he was not with Christ during his three-and-a-half-year ministry And he was persecuting the church and killing Christians. And now he's out telling people, trust me, I really am an apostle. And his evidence is, I've seen the risen Lord. And the risen Lord chose me. And God chose me and put me into service. I'm not doing this because I want to. Do you think Paul really signed up for the gig that includes massive suffering Oh yeah, where do I sign? Yeah, I'm in for that. But Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, a moment ago I said that it's probably Timothy who did the amanuensis work, or there was a third party here, but he's with Timothy to the church which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, Achaia is like the the county where the city of Corinth is, it's a region of Greece. Grace to you and peace from our father, peace from God our father. I, I end most of my emails with grace and peace, Jim, because I've just adopted that phrase, grace and peace but I don't want us to become so familiar with the idea of grace and peace that we forget how important the word order is because Paul never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace because you can't have peace with God until there's grace because the word peace at its root, irene in the Greek, the word means the ceasing, the stopping Of the againstness. So men are at enmity with God, and there needs to be reconciliation. There needs to be a restoration of the relationship. Men are sinning against God, men hate God, men want nothing to do with God, and in that state, there's no way that they can make it okay between them and God. God has to do it. In order for there to be peace, God has to stop the againstness. God has to bring about the reconciliation. I've used this example enough times before, but when two men are boxing, when two guys are gloved up in boxing, the fight stops. Peace breaks out when one or the other of them puts down his gloves. Okay, I'm not fighting anymore. You win. But up until then, there's massive againstness as these two guys punch the daylights out of each other. Well, that's that's the point of this word, that you and God were in constant conflict with each other. And somebody had to lay down their gloves and say, that's it. I stop fighting. You win. And human beings never do that because they can't do that because they're sinners by nature they're rebellious by nature so human beings cannot bring themselves to make peace with God that means God has to be the one to make peace he has to stop the fight and the only way he will do that is by grace it can't be because he saw something in April that was just so darn good that he looked at her and said well, okay, since you're like that, I'll, I'll stop fighting with you. All that againstness, all that dislike, all that sin, all that hatred of everything that is godly, I'll forgive all that because, well, you did something so good that I'll, I'll accept you on that basis. And the whole time I was using April as an example, she was smiling and nodding because it's just true of human beings. There's just nothing within us that is so good that God would say, I choose you on the basis of your personal goodness. So he has to choose us by grace. He has to choose us because he's kind to us, because he's gracious, because he's long-suffering toward us. So there has to be grace from God before there can be peace with God. Until you can have a peaceful relationship with the almighty, holy maker of everything, he must be gracious to you. It's axiomatic. It's provable just by looking at it that he is not that gracious to everybody. Because there are plenty of people who are still fighting with God. There are plenty of people who still hate God. There are plenty of people who are still rebelling, shaking their fist at God but you're not. I used April as an example a moment ago, so I'll use her again. April, why aren't you like that anymore? Why aren't you rebelling? Why aren't you out there in the streets with everybody else? Why aren't you riding in the streets, just going crazy all the time and saying, I will not have... This God rule over me. I will not live by his standards. I do not love his son. Nothing about God attracts me. Why aren't you like that anymore? Is it because you decided? No. No. It's because something happened to you. God was good to you. God was gracious to you. And yet I know we can walk outside right now. And within two minutes we can find somebody who does not have Her love of God. Could walk right outside right now. And there's somebody who's still rebelling. Why? Why are they still rebelling and she's not? Because God's grace is individual and personal. And God is gracious to those people he chooses. But he's not good and gracious to everybody that way. I know that's a big theological statement I've just made. But all you got to do is look at a saved Christian and look at a rebellious worldling and you can see the difference what's the difference it's never that the Christian was that good it's always got to be that God was that good to that Christian and he wasn't to that rebellious person it proves itself so Paul uses the phrase grace and peace grace to you and peace and where do those things come from not through the law not through moses not through the old covenant the grace and the peace come from god our father and the lord jesus christ i don't know if you can read my my hieroglyphic handwriting That's actually an O. The bottom word there is the word that is translated at the beginning of verse 3 as blessed. And I think that's one of those words that we use in Christianese and we don't know what it means. Have you ever met somebody you say, how you doing? And they say, blessed. I'm just blessed. You say, oh, in what way? (laughs) Explain your blessedness. They don't know. They're just, uh, what they think it means is, well, I'm just doing well. I'm healthy today. The bills are paid. I'm blessed. Well, this word, eulogia, is the root word from which we get eulogy, which means to speak well of somebody. You see the logia part? Think about logos. Logos is the word, in the beginning was the word that was logos. Logia is to speak. You means good. It's good speech. The word at the bottom, eulogetos, is the word that is translated blessed. And what it means is to recognize that God is truly adorable. And what I mean by that word is not, oh, he's so cute. He's adorable like a puppy or something. I mean, he's the only one in the universe who deserves adoration, He deserves to be adored because he is adorable. And so Paul can rightly apply this word to God and say God deserves good things said about him. And so I'm going to say good things about God. And in that way, God is blessed. Do you understand the word? Because I was afraid if I just read by it as blessed is God... That you would think, I mean, lucky is God, or God's having a good day, or man, heaven's good real estate, or something. But but what it really means is that God deserves to have really good things said about Him. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after he has identified God as the father of Christ, as the progenitor, as the, as the source of Jesus Christ, he then creates the same sentence again. But in the place of Christ, he uses other words. He is the father of mercy, and he is the God of all comfort. Everybody who wanted to write those words down, they're gone now. Too late. We're going to look at a couple different forms of this word because it's an important word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercy. This is very, very important. Do you know the difference between grace and mercy? The the standard theological difference is to say grace is something that God gives you. He is gracious to you in that he is giving you something you don't deserve. He's giving you kindness. He's giving you love. He's giving you the heart of flesh instead of the heart of stone. He's doing all that for you graciously. Mercy, on the other hand, is God not giving you what you deserve. Because what you deserve is hell forever. What you deserve is judgment. But he mercifully is not giving that to you. Out of grace, he is giving you what you can't possibly deserve. He's giving you his son. He's giving you forgiveness of sin. He's giving you the promise of everlasting life. He's giving you the hope that passes all understanding. That's grace. But then he says he is the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. That's this word up here, this parakaleo. Now, if if it looks familiar... That was an E. I know it looks like a hieroglyphic person going like this, but that's an E. Anyways, in the book of John, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit to come, the specific name that he gives the Holy Spirit is the Comforter. That's this word, parakletos. Now, let's break that word down for just a moment, because what it means is, the, the para part means to be alongside. And it has moved into our English language in a lot of different ways. You're a paralegal, right? No. I'm just a secretary. <laughs> well, then we'll talk to somebody else. Okay. <laughs> um, for some reason, I thought you worked as a paralegal, but you worked as a secretary. Yeah. George, you're in the back somewhere. Yeah. What's a paralegal? It's one who comes alongside an attorney. Right. If you have two lines that never intersect, they are parallel, two lines next to each other. So this para idea has moved into the English language. The, the word comforter, Paracletos, means the one who comes alongside. I, in my experience as a pastor and as a human being on planet Earth, I've had to deal with people who are in tragedy. I've had to deal with the 3 a.m. phone calls. And I have learned the hard way that when somebody's in deep distress, when they're really in tragedy, when they're really beyond themselves in trouble and pain, that at that moment, there are no words. There are no good words that I can say that can help them, but I can help them tremendously by just being there, just being alongside. Many are the times that I've been with someone who's really hurting and I've just sat next to them. And just by sitting next to them, putting my shoulder to their shoulder, letting them know that there's somebody else there, that is a tremendous comfort to them. That is exactly the idea of the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside. And that is why it is translated as comforter, because he's with you. And so comforter, parakletos, this parakaleo means, kaleo means call to be called alongside. And that is the word that Paul is using to translate as God of all comfort. But what it really means is the Holy Spirit who is given to you as a gift from God, not given to everybody, Jesus said that, the spirit whom the world cannot receive. So we know that not everybody gets the Holy Spirit, but those people who receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from God Those people have the constant comfort with them of the one who is called alongside them. And if you've ever been in an experience that you think, well, this one's going to kill me, I'm not going to make it through this one. But somehow, in the midst of all your pain and trouble, you find peace, you find comfort. You find a way to get through what would otherwise be impossible for human beings to get through. Well, that's that idea. That's, the idea is that God, by his spirit, is giving you the realization that he is with you. Paul says, be content with such things as you have, because he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the knowledge that he is ever with you and that he's alongside is a comfort. So I hope you're getting a whole lot more out of this word than Paul just mentioning that God is the God of all comfort. Because it would be easy for you to think, oh, comfort, that means feather bed. Oh, comfort, that means I, I'm always in air conditioning and I walk in shag carpet with my shoes off because that's comfortable. That's not the word he's using he's saying the Holy Spirit comes alongside and now he's going to tell you why you need the Spirit of God alongside you. It's because as I already mentioned God began the relationship with Paul by saying I'm going to show him the things he has to suffer. And there is suffering in the Christian life. And knowing that there's suffering in the Christian life, God has also provided for you the comfort that will get you through the trials of this life. Because Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us. In all our affliction. Okay, now that's, that's the standard Greek word for trouble, trial, tribulation. It is thalipsis. Jesus said, In this world you will have thalipsis. Now, this is not the thalipsis megas. He talks about that separately. Matthew 24 talks about a time of trouble on the earth such as never was, ever would be again. And sometimes when people mix up Jesus saying in this world you'll have trouble and then combining it with great tribulation, they get confused. But those are two separate ideas. In this world, as a Christian, whatever time frame you live in, whether you're in the great tribulation or whether you're just in this earthly life, your Christianity is going to bring trouble. It's part of the package. Philipsis is coming. And if the trouble came, if the trials, if the tribulation came and you did not have the spirit of God, you would not be able to endure the trouble. But what did Paul write in 1 Corinthians? He said, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful, who will not tempt you above what you are able, is what he said. But will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. So God, trying to get this idea across, and I hope I'm getting there. God's sovereign. We all agree with that, right? Yes. Okay, God's in charge. God's a king on his throne doing whatever he wants. David tells us that right away in the Psalms. People say, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God is in absolute charge of his universe. God's sovereign. So why is there so much trouble? I was reading the other day out of the book of Judges. And I was reading about Gideon. Because I'm sort of fascinated with Gideon. Because Gideon was just so reluctant and God kept saying, no, you're going to deliver Israel. You're going to be one of my judges. And then he said, okay. And he amassed an army. And God went, okay, now I'm going to narrow that army down to just 300. You know, and Gideon was like, no, you're not helping. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do what you said to do, and you're making it harder. God wanted to make sure that, that Gideon understood that he was the one who was accomplishing all this. Well, there's a point at which Gideon is complaining about the fact that that the Israelites have been so overwhelmed by their enemies at that point that their enemies are even living on Israelite land, in the caves, in the den, and whenever they produce crops or produce food, their enemies would come down and steal all the food and everything. And so Israel's starving, and Israel's having a, a, just a, a terrible run of it. And the question that Gideon asks is, Where be all his miracles? Isn't that a good question? Because he knows. Because an angel of the Lord actually shows up and answers him. I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. I'm the God that took you through the Red Sea. I'm the God that's in charge. So he knows all of that from history. He knows that all happened once upon a time to the Israelites. But in his day and age... Where are the miracles? I thought we were your chosen people. We're getting beat up. We're going hungry. We're, you're nodding because it's a question we ask, isn't it? It's absolutely a question we have today. But wait, we're the church. But wait, you love us. But wait, you sent your son for us. Where be all your miracles? If I could just see one good solid miracle. And then, of course, Jesus was the one who said when the Pharisees were insisting that he show a miracle, he said a wicked, adulterous generation requires a sign to believe, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, the Son of Man is going to be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, that's the only miracle you get. That's the only sign you get. That's the only proof positive you get is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He even said that. But I think, in my silly little mind, I think that if I could just see a good solid miracle, that that would increase my faith. That that would increase my confidence. It doesn't even have to be big. I mean, just... Somebody who sprained their ankle and boom, they're better. You know, I mean, I just show me something that is unexplainable through any other means than it's it's a miracle. But in my lifetime, I've never seen that kind of miracle. So the answer that Gideon gets, because I was relating to him entirely. Because human beings today are just like Gideon was then. Gideon was looking at his environment and even though he knew the stories of God's miraculous power he wanted it right now yeah but where is it right now and that's the question the church is asking that's certainly the question that the atheists are asking is okay if God's a miracle worker where are the miracles but it did me a lot of good to know that in Gideon's time there was a length of time where God just was quiet until Gideon cried out. We know that between the end of the Old Testament until the beginning of the New Testament, there's a 400-year gap there where God is silent. He doesn't even send prophets. He's not talking to anybody. And then John the Baptist appears But if you happen to be alive during that 400 year gap you'd be saying, where is he? Where are the miracles? Where's the stuff? Okay, so I said all that to say the suffering, the trouble, the problems of life are coming but God has not left us to ourselves. He has sent us the comforter, the one that comes alongside who Paul says seals us and holds on to us even in those moments when we want to cry out, where is he? Well, well he's right here. And he's in the heavens doing whatever he pleases. And He has given you the, the Holy Spirit as a surety, as a down payment, Paul's going to say. Here, we'll let him say it. He is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our philipsis, all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, this is Paul's logic. The reason God's been good to you is so that you can be good to somebody else. So he just said, God comforts us with this miraculous comfort via his Holy Spirit so that we can comfort someone else with the same comfort we've been comforted with. So again, within the body of the church, remember that he's writing to the church, within the body of the church there is to be care and concern and sacrifice for one another and we ought to be able to come alongside each other and be there for each other when we're going through our difficulties. How many times have you heard me say, somebody keep count, the phrase that I like so very much? A joy shared is twice the joy, because when you share your joy with somebody else, then they're joyful with you. That's twice the joy. But a burden shared is half the burden. Now you've got two people to put their shoulder to the burden, and you end up carrying half that weight. So Paul is saying that the reason that God sends the Holy Spirit to comfort us is so that we can comfort other people with the same comfort that we've been comforted with. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5. For just as the suffering of Christ is ours in abundance, so also the comfort is abundant through Christ. Notice that Paul does not shy away from saying, the affliction, the suffering that goes with Christianity is abundant. And he knows what he's talking about. Five times, beaten with 39 lashes. Day and a night in the deep, left outside the gates of Lystra for dead. He he knows. In prisons often. In fastings, hungry often. He knows what it is to be afflicted for Christ. Especially when you compare it to the very good and comfortable life he had while he was a Jew persecuting the church. He was rich and powerful enough to be out there representing the temple while he's out there hunting down and arresting Christians. He's very well to do. By this world standard, very well to do. But once Christ chose him, once God made him his chosen vessel to go preach to the kings and the Gentiles and the children of Israel, once God got a hold of him, his life went 180 degrees the other direction. From I'm fine and everything's good and I'm rich and I'm powerful and I'm politically connected and don't worry about me, he went right from that into prison, Right from that into getting beaten and stoned and left for dead. So he knows that these sufferings, the afflictions that come with Christ are ours in abundance. You'll notice that he doesn't just say mine. The suffering is mine in abundance. It's ours in abundance because the church was being persecuted Because the church was being scattered as often as anybody could infiltrate the church. They they tried to break the church up, and that's why he called for unity over and over again. The church has to stay together, or else it will be scattered by this world. But, verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Notice that either case, as far as Paul is concerned, I think when he uses the word our right there, he's talking about him and Timothy and the people that were traveling with him. And he says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. It's for your good. We're being afflicted for bringing the gospel to you, for bringing the Holy Spirit, for bringing the comfort that human beings can't possibly know unless god is good to them i'm being afflicted for preaching that to you so it's for your comfort and then he turns around says and if we're comforted if the holy spirit of god comforts us in the midst of our affliction it's also for your comfort either way he's telling the people at corinth whether i'm going through pain or whether i'm going through times of goodness and kindness it's all for you I'm doing this for you. You're not the ones taking the beating. I am. You're not the one getting lashed. I am. And I'm doing all of this for you, for your good, for your comfort. Verse 5 again, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted it's for your comfort and salvation or if we are comforted it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we ourselves suffer so now he pluralized it again now he said yeah I'm suffering because of Christ and As you recognize and as you proclaim Christ, you're going to go through the same suffering I'm going through. You're never going to feel comfortable in this world. You're never going to feel like this world is treating you right and fair. Don't expect rightness. Don't expect fairness. Because they weren't good and kind and fair with Paul, they're not going to be with you. And so he says the Holy Spirit of God, the one who comes alongside, comes along for your comfort as these afflictions do inflict you. Afflictions afflict. That was the way I went with that. But then again, the comforter comforts. So there. Verse 7. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that As you are sharers in our suffering, so you also are sharers in our comfort. The affliction, the troubles, the trials, the tribulation is the proof positive that you're committed to your Christianity. When the world opposes what we believe, when the world opposes Christ and his church... If you want the affliction, the trials, the troubles to stop, you can do that. All you got to do is tell them, oh, I agree with you now. You're right. I'm not a Christian. Never mind. I made it up. Forget it. No, don't worry. And then all the trouble stops. And the world will love you. In fact, the world will put you on TV and parade you around as a guy who used to be a Christian, but not anymore. He saw through it. You can become famous on the back of denouncing Christ. Plenty of people have. But if you continue to stand for the things of Christ, you are going to be afflicted. But the affliction is the proof positive that you're not of this world. As Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you're not of this world because I've chosen you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. It's what Jesus said. In fact, he went so far as to say, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's a tough one. I like it when people speak well of me. I prefer that people speak well of me. That's why I don't read the comments on YouTube. (laughs) I I just, I prefer that people speak well of me. Jesus said, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, because that means you're a man pleaser instead of a God pleaser if you stand for the things of God if you stand for the things of Christ the world will hate you but that is again the proof positive that God has chosen you that he has indwelt you that he is saving you and the same way that you are sharers in the affliction you're sharers in the Holy Spirit that brings you comfort we're nearly done I promise Really, the reason the morning seems a little long is that we spent a bunch of time singing to Marilyn. So really, it's it's her fault. And uh, verse eight: For we do not want you to be unaware. The King James says ignorant. I don't. I don't want you to be unaware of this fact, brethren, that our affliction, which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our own personal strength so that we despaired even of life. Remembering again that Paul was attacked over and over again, whether we're talking about Ephesus and the silversmiths' riot or whether we're talking about the stoning in Lystra and left outside for dead. I mean, he reached the point where he despaired over his own life, whether he'd even live through it. But look what he says, verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. I don't know how many people have been here all that long. But Jeff and I used to talk a lot about hinna clauses in the Greek language. The next word is hinna in the Greek. And what a hinna clause means is this happened because this happened. So this, then this, but the second this is the result of the first this. Got it? Okay, well, he's going to create a HINA clause here. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but trust in God who raises the dead okay, this is really deep and heavy, okay, this is really thick, okay, I get all the stuff about, okay, Christianity, trouble, tribulation, problems, okay, and then there's comfort by the Holy Spirit and everything else, but then Paul sees purpose in it, as I've so often said, if there was no purpose to the suffering, then purposeless suffering would be ours that, that accomplishes nothing, but Paul is saying that God in his divine, very, very sovereign plan is taking us through the trials, is taking us through the problems for the cause that we would not trust ourselves, but we would trust God. So he's taking us through things that only he can take us through that only he can comfort us in the midst of, that only he can empower us in the midst of it, he's taking us through these troubles and trials so that we'll reach an end of ourselves, so that we will not think, I'll get through this me, mighty me. I'm a man. Here I go. I spelled M. I mean, I'm a, I can do it. <laughs> I'm glad one person enjoyed that. <laughs> Nike, self-made man. You know, I can, I can just, just do it. I can just take care of all this... God is going to drive that out of us because that's pride, that's ego, that's self-sufficiency. God is going to drive that out of us until we rely entirely on him. And the way that he accomplishes that is through trouble and trials and tribulum and problems. I wish there was another way. I wish that he could just stamp us on the forehead. Boom, you're good to go. That's not the way it works. Instead, he loves us so much. He is so determined to change our mind and hearts. He is so determined to draw us to himself that he will make us come to an end of ourselves, so that we trust him entirely. And that's the purpose for the suffering. Paul also said that he went through the amount of suffering he went through so that he wouldn't get raised up in his flesh because of the wonderful revelation that had been given him. He did not march around talking about the the first university of Paul. He did not start a Pauline ministry with a satellite uplink. He did not he did not go around saying send all your money to me and then God will bless you because I'm the important one. It, Instead, he recognized that the revelation that God gave him was a revelation by grace, a revelation that God gave him because God chose him, because God elected him. And there was nothing good within himself that would cause God to do that. And because God chose him to go and reveal these things to the Gentiles because that revelation was so great and so many people were being saved through the ministry of Paul, he recognized that God had to keep him down and had to keep him suffering so that he wouldn't get raised up in pride because of the greatness of the revelation that was his. You get all that? Three times he says, I went to God because I had a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. You know what buffet means? We're back to boxing. A messenger of Satan sent to punch me in the face, beat me up, buffet me. He says, three times I went to God and said, remove this thing. Paul, the great healer, Paul, the one who healed all those people on Malta after he has this healing ability apparently where people thought and and even tried to worship him as a great healer nevertheless he couldn't heal himself he has this this messenger from satan sent to to pound him to beat him to punch him that he's just so sick and tired of that he ends up going to god three different times and saying remove this thing from me you remember god's answer my grace is sufficient sufficient for you Mm. i know It's like, no, 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 removing the thorn would be sufficient for me. But God's answer is, yeah, I gave you the thorn. Yeah, I'm letting you go through these troubles and these trials on purpose. But my grace is sufficient to comfort you, to take you through it, to take care of you. And the end result is going to be that you will not trust in yourself, you'll trust entirely and thoroughly on God that's why we struggle that's why we go through trials is there anybody in this room Danielle this one's for you and your sisters is there anybody in this room who would say so far in their life they haven't suffered at all because I expect that the youngsters would say well yeah I'm young you know, nothing, nothing much has happened to me things are good and the answer is live a little longer stay alive a little bit longer the suffering is part of the package. Trials, struggles, it's just part of it. Indeed, we had the very sentence of death within ourselves. In order, Hina, that we should not trust in ourselves. But we should trust in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death. And will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us you also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many we'll pick up there next week that's where we're going to start so this morning was all about suffering and comfort You shouldn't consider it a strange thing. It's certainly what James says, that we shouldn't consider it a strange thing, an odd, a foreign thing, when we go through all kinds of trials, because it's just part of the package. And I guarantee you, this is a rock-solid guarantee, that you'll be about five minutes into heaven before you go, you know that suffering thing? That was worth it, every bit of it. Whatever you took me through, however you got me here, whatever you had to do to me so that I would lose confidence in myself and gain confidence in you, whatever you had to do to build my faith, whatever you had to do to get me here to your throne, worth it, completely worth it. Sign me up to do it again if necessary. I, yeah, I get it now. But right now. In our temporal lives, right now while we're struggling, right now while we're in pain, right now while we're losing loved ones, right now in this sin-soaked, difficult world, we have a tendency to think, I don't want to suffer anymore. And that's why God gives us the comforter to get us through those trials. As Paul said, he delivered me, even from death, and he will deliver me. And he will deliver you. And he'll get you through until he gets you home. And that's the point. You got it? Got it Questions? Yes, ma'am.
1: Just a comment. Yes. You know, he, he takes us through those things not only to uh, make us trust in him, but I have seen, I would call it miracles, where evidence that it had to be God. So
0: he also builds up our face that way, and, um, which we would never see unless we had the need. Can I share an email with you before you go? I get both the email that says, Who are you? You know, all in capital letters, and how dare you? I get those. But then every once in a while I get an email that reminds me why I and we do the things we do. And so I just want to share an email with you. I know that it's sort of... Self-serving, or at least would be if I came in here every week and said, look, here's a nice message for me. But this one's for all of us. And I want you to understand, this is why we do what we do. I was just so happy with this email. My brother, and she tells me her brother's name, advised me to listen to you as we both grew up in the Baptist church, believing that it is our choice to accept Christ as Savior. And God was sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands in hopes that we would. Capital wow, was I wrong? You have convinced me from the Bible regarding God's sovereign election, and my entire world has drastically changed. When salvation was my choice, I was arrogant, church was a duty, I graced God by going. Bible reading was a chore that I did because it was the right thing to do don't we all relate to that see I told you you were going to like this email yeah, because that's how we all were when we thought it was up to us at some point we just get arrogant at some point we just go I'm going to church because God's proud of me yeah when God became sovereign in my life now I fear him I truly cannot get enough of God. Just that one concept makes me want to learn everything I can about a God who would actually choose a worm like me. No one in my circle of friends or family believes in the election of God. So I am lectured any time I talk to them. They use arguments like a truly powerful God would allow people a choice. Or, well, then we're just robots. Or, hey, John 3.16. And then they say, and God is not willing that any should perish, but it doesn't bother me. I just hold on to God's election as my precious treasure in my changed and adoring God heart. Thank you. Thank GCA. I listen to all of you daily and I pray for you often that's why we do this that's why we just keep saying God is sovereign God's in charge because he's out there changing lives now why did I bring that up because on the back of Joni's comment I had that email on my computer and and when you said there are some things that happen where you you can't deny that it's, it's God it has to be God well that has to be God that's not me I'm not that likable that, that's not us, because we, everybody except Jennifer, everybody here, we're not that likable. Especially Leon. We're, we're just, we're not that. And yet, this girl was changed by the sovereignty of God to the point where she desires God more than anything. That has to be God. That can't be anything else. So, so I agree with you. Even as we are saying, where be all his miracles? We can point at some things and say, but that's God. He's active. He's alive. He's well. He's doing the things that please him. And uh, and he's still doing it. Thank God. All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.